This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Each year, an estimated 30,000 cases of Lyme disease are reported nationwide. While it's thought that the actual number of individuals diagnosed with the condition is more likely to be 10 times that number. While Lyme disease is relatively easily treated, the diagnosis can be difficult as the presenting symptoms can be very subtle. And without early treatment, Lyme disease can cause serious health problems. With us today to discuss Lyme disease is Dr. Bobby Pritt, Director of the Clinical Parasitology Lab and Co-Director of Vector-Borne Diseases Laboratory Services in the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic. Bobby, welcome. Thank you, Daryl. Let's start by talking about the geographic location of Lyme disease. Is it throughout the U.S.? Sure, that's a great question. Um, Although there have been cases reported from all 50 states, the main areas of the United States where Lyme disease has the highest incidence would be the upper Midwest, the mid-Atlantic states, and the Northeast, of course. And it's about 15 states and the District of Columbia where the highest incidence is. And the disease is named after really the location where it was discovered, right? Old Lyme, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Does it exist outside the United States? There are cases of uh, Lyme disease caused by different organisms in Europe and other countries, yes. But in the United States, we have Borrelia burgdorferi as the primary cause of Lyme disease. Kind of rolls off your tongue. (laughs) It's a little bit of a mouthful. Is there one tick that's responsible for transmitting this disease, or are there more than one? Well, in the United States, there is one primary tick and then a secondary tick. The primary tick is Ixodes scapularis, and that is what we call the black-legged tick or the deer tick. There's also on the west coast Ixodes pacificus, and that is sometimes called the Pacific black-legged tick. Now, in Europe and other countries, they have different ticks that could also transmit Lyme disease. Hmm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Is this disease limited to humans? No, actually, uh, dogs and cats can get Lyme disease. And in the wild, a number of different animals are infected, rodents, including small mice, chipmunks, etc. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to get rid of. We're never going to be able to eradicate Lyme disease as long as we have a wide variety of animals that can get infected. So does this, we talk, we talk about deer ticks, does, does this disease require a deer to transmit it or can they get it from a tick from one of these other animals? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's why uh, the term black-legged tick is probably a better term instead of deer tick because um, it makes it sound like Lyme disease is somehow related to deer. Mm-hmm. Deer don't actually get Lyme disease, but they could feed Uh, provide the blood source for the ticks. So even though they're a part of the tick's life cycle and they provide the blood for uh, the tick's meal, they themselves don't get Lyme disease. And so you cannot get Lyme disease from a deer. I didn't know that. Yes. Is there a time of year where you're more likely to get Lyme disease? Is it 
somewhat seasonal? It is a bit seasonal, especially when you're living in places like Minnesota, mm -hmm. uh, where we are here. Uh, it's really when there's not snow on the ground. Uh, spring and summer months would be the primary time, and especially in the spring when the immature ticks called nymphs are out and looking for a blood meal. And the reason that that's very risky for humans is that they're so small. They're about the size of a poppy seed, just a couple of millimeters. So you could easily miss them and not even know you were bitten by a tick. Mm. So no snow on the ground in Minnesota. So we're kind of limited <laughs> like two weeks of the year. Yeah, for right, this, right, exactly. All right. Can this be transmitted from one individual to another? It cannot be transmitted except in very rare circumstances, which I'll mention, but from one person to another through any type of contact, even intimate contact, uh, cannot transmit Lyme disease. The only incidents where they've noted possible transmission is when a woman is pregnant, there has been some transplacental transmission. So it can go from the woman's bloodstream to the placenta. And there have been some rare cases of stillbirth associated with Lyme disease. How about from breast milk? No, there's no evidence that it could be transmitted through breast milk. Well, we've been taught that we should watch for this bullseye rash. Yes. And I've actually seen that a couple times in patients. But I understand that's not necessarily present all the time. It's not. And so it's important to know what the other symptoms are of Lyme disease and to consider it in your differential and also to think about it uh, just with any person who's potentially exposed to ticks. Now our classic studies tell us that about 70% of the time you'll see a bullseye rash, but it's not always a typical rash, and sometimes it can take two weeks or more for the rash to form, and plus if it is on your scalp or your back, you may miss it altogether. So in addition to the rash, what else can be presenting to us? Well, some of the other symptoms would be things like fever and body aches. A very, very severe headache is a common presenting sign, muscle aches. And then, of course, if it's not treated right away, then other manifestations can occur later on. So we really have to be alert for some very subtle, nondescript right. symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you mentioned in the first, in your opening statements, it could be difficult to diagnose because it could look like just a very classic you know, simple viral type illness. Mm -hmm. I used to work in the urgent care center and we would get patients who would bring in ticks that they found yes. on them and they were the typical larger wood ticks. So we would reassure them that they didn't have any uh, potential for Lyme disease. But those that sounded real, like the uh, tick was very tiny, would often come in like two days after they found the tick on them. Mm. But that's probably too soon to be tested, correct? It is too soon if you're going to test for antibodies. So the thankfully the CDC and IDSA have some good guidelines for us for preventative measures and prophylaxis. So say that a patient comes in with a small tick or a tick that's been present and attached for 36 hours or more. If you can identify that tick as a black-legged tick, and you're in a high endemic area, then that patient should get a course of uh, doxycycline to prevent Lyme disease. And at that point, serology testing is going to be negative mm -hmm. because it takes a couple days at least for your body to develop antibodies that can be detected. So in that case, you don't even need to test. You just, you give a single dose of doxycycline to prevent Lyme disease. Okay, so easy is just to treat, not mm -hmm. worry about testing. <clears throat> right, and there's another instance uh, where you don't need to test, and that would be if your patient comes in with a bullseye rash. The bullseye rash, if you are in a high endemic Lyme disease area, that is considered diagnostic for Lyme disease, mm -hmm. and you wanna just treat the patient as if they had Lyme disease. Okay. 
how infectious is this organism? So in a given person bitten by one of these ticks, how likely are they to get the disease? Well, it depends on a couple of things. It depends, first of all, if the tick is infected or not. So in an area like the upper Midwest where we are or in the Northeast, these high endemic areas, up to 40% of the ticks could be infected. So you're almost at a 50-50 chance of having the tick that's biting you have Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it also depends on how long the tick has been attached. And we have good studies that show that the tick has to remain attached for at least 36 hours before it can transmit Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the bacterium Mm -hmm. that causes Lyme disease. So you could have an infected tick crawling on you, even biting you, but if it's only been attached for an hour or two, you're not gonna get Lyme disease from that tick. What happens if we miss the initial symptoms? Then you worry about some of the longer-term consequences, and those can be pretty serious. Uh, We think of things like arthritis, which can be uh, very debilitating for our patients, tends to involve the large joints like the knees, and can last for months, even years. Um, Even after treatment, you can have residual arthritis. Uh, Another thing would be facial palsy, or so-called Bell's palsy, Mm -hmm. where you get usually uh, one-sided facial drooping and muscle weakness. Uh, But then some of the consequences that you'd really want to worry about would be involvement of the heart, arrhythmias, so irregular heartbeat, and then involvement of the brain, encephalitis. Those are some of the more dangerous symptoms. Are you an NP or PA looking to fulfill your 2019 CME and pharmacology credit requirements? We have designed our online inpatient medicine for NPs and PAs course just for you. Learn about treatment pathways from admission to discharge in an interactive case-based format. Visit ce.mayo.edu to get started on your credits now. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. You suggested this a little bit, but there are diseases that Lyme disease can mimic. Right. Right. What are some that are common? Well, it depends on the time of the year, of course, um, because it can often cause what we would uh, describe as a flu-like illness. So maybe you wouldn't be worried about influenza uh, in the middle of the summertime, at least not too often. But there's other viral symptoms that can be a flu-like illness. So you have to really keep a broad differential when someone comes in with a fever, headache, and body aches, maybe some joint pain in the summertime, and just always consider Lyme disease in the differential. Mm -hmm. We occasionally get patients who come in with chronic fatigue, Mm. and they want to know if they have chronic mono or chronic Lyme disease. Does such a condition exist where you basically only get chronic fatigue? Well, it's a, a interesting area, the idea of chronic Lyme disease. It does exist in the sense that if you have someone who's not treated, they can be chronically infected with Lyme disease. And then all of those symptoms I just mentioned, including the involvement of the heart and brain, could potentially occur. But 
if the patient has been adequately treated for Lyme disease, then the thought is that the patient is no longer infected. Unfortunately, they can have long-term symptoms and they can last for quite some time before they eventually go away. And the CDC refers to that as post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, indicating that it's not an ongoing infection as much as it is ongoing symptoms. So to answer your question, Mm -hmm. people can unfortunately have long-term symptoms even after treatment. And that can be really challenging. How should we be testing for Lyme? So uh, there's a couple caveats that I mentioned, first of all, where you don't need to test at Mm -hmm. all. That would be if the patient comes in with a tick bite where the tick's been attached for 36 hours or more in a high endemic area, you know it's a black-legged tick, you give the patient doxycycline. If you can give it very relatively quickly and there's no contraindication to giving it. Also the bullseye rash. If they have a bullseye rash in a high endemic area, treat as if it were Lyme disease. Now, if those aren't present and you do suspect your patient has Lyme disease, our classic test methodology is serology, where you're looking for the body's immune response, production of antibodies Mm -hmm. to Lyme disease, the bacterium, Borrelia burgdorferi. And that's going to take several days for a detectable antibody response to appear. So you may need to test them again if the initial test is negative. That's where the testing and diagnosis of Lyme disease can be a bit more complicated, is if you don't have those early symptoms, you may get a false negative result early on, and then you need to test again. Okay. Now, we have patients who come in who say they live in an endemic Lyme area, and they just want to be tested for Lyme disease Mm -hmm. without really any symptoms. But based on your description of these vague symptoms, it maybe seems reasonable to go ahead and test them if they're asking for it. Yeah, it really probably needs to be a case-by-case discussion with their physician as to whether testing is going to be indicated. Because whenever you do a laboratory test, you run the risk of false positives as well. And then you go down that whole uh, pathway of whether to treat the patient or not based on a questionable result. Mm -hmm. But I agree that it's worth considering and that the patient can have long-term chronic symptoms associated with Lyme. So there may be many situations where treatment or uh, testing would be indicated. Mm -hmm. Let's say a patient has had documented Lyme disease. Uh, They were treated. Can they get it again? They can. Yes, that's a very important point. There are multiple different strains of Borrelia burgdorferi, which again is the major cause of Lyme disease in in the United States. So when you get infected with one strain, it doesn't provide enough immunity against infection with other strains. So once you get Lyme disease, you still are at risk for other cases and you need to continue to protect yourself against tick bites. So how does one protect oneself from getting Lyme disease? I'm glad you asked that because I think that's one of the most important messages to everyone out there now that we're in the spring, springtime, even though in Minnesota it doesn't quite feel that way. Um, The ticks are out and they are biting. And so everyone needs to consider protecting themselves from tick bites when they're outdoors. I like to refer to the ABCs of tick bite prevention. So A is avoid the areas where the ticks are found. That would be in the tall grasses, the shrubs, the forests. Now, sometimes you want to go out into those areas and you can't avoid them, but at least you know that you are potentially being exposed. And then you would take step B, which is bug spray. 
-hmm. and you want to spray exposed skin with a insect repellent like DEET. You could also spray permethrin on your clothing, and there are some other alternatives. And then C is clothing or cover up, essentially cover up exposed skin. Uh, so you're giving the ticks less free skin to bite onto. And then once you've done those steps and you've been outdoors and you come back in, the last thing is to always do a thorough tick check mm -hmm. for yourself, your loved ones, and your pets because they can bring ticks indoors. And these things are pretty tiny, aren't they? They can be. And when they're not engorged with blood, as I mentioned, they could be the size of a poppy seed. Now, as they get bigger and full of blood, they might be easier to see, but that means they've been attached for longer. Mm -hmm. So you want to catch them as soon as possible and remove them. It seems like Lyme was described, what, 25, 30 years ago, something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. But I would imagine this has existed for many, much yes. time before this, right? Yeah, it's in all likelihood. And in fact, we have some data from old archive ticks that we've dug out of museums and tested, and sure enough, Lyme disease has been around for longer. There's a number of reasons why it's increasing in incidents. Um, some of it's just human behavior. We like to go outdoors mm -hmm. and go out into the woods. Um, other things is that we've changed our environments to facilitate the animals that would carry Lyme disease and the ticks. So uh, we don't have big open fields with farming anymore. We have smaller forests, second growth forests, where deer and mice can thrive. So it's a number of different factors. I seem to remember there was a vaccine that was either being developed or had been developed for mm -hmm. Lyme disease, but I haven't heard anything about it lately. What, what's yeah, the status on there that? There used to be a vaccine on the market. It was back before Lyme disease was really as big as it is now, and there wasn't as much public awareness. And it wasn't very popular for a number of reasons. The manufacturer decided to take it off the market. Uh, there were also some potential side effects with Guillain-Barre syndrome being reported. Um, that unfortunately stopped the vaccine production and we do not have a human vaccine right now. There is one for dogs. But fortunately, there is a lot of work being done in Lyme vaccine development. So mm -hmm. hopefully in the future, we will have another vaccine. Hopefully one that's very effective with very minimal side effects. Mm -hmm. Well, we've talked about Lyme disease, but there should be other diseases that mm -hmm. we need to be concerned about that are transmitted by ticks. Right. Well, I think that that's a great message to give to everyone is that even though we worry about Lyme disease, it's our number one vector-borne disease in North America, there's others as well. There's Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Anaplasmosis, Babesiosis, or Lichiosis. Some of these can be quite serious, even deadly. So the main message is to know what the organisms, the, the risks are in your area, and then to protect yourself against tick bites. Mm -hmm. And if you protect yourself against tick bites, you protect yourself against all of those terrible diseases. Okay. So what are the takeaway points for our listeners uh, who are primary care providers? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the main takeaway points would be that uh, Lyme disease is a serious threat. It really does need to be considered in the differential when seeing patients with uh, a febrile illness, myalgias, arthralgias during uh, the spring and summer months. That spring and summer are the main peak times, but of course, as long as there's no snow on the ground, the ticks are still out and biting, so it's a fairly broad 
swath of time that you need to worry about Lyme disease, uh, that we do have good diagnostics, but early on, the bullseye rash may be the best indicator you have, and that there is a preventative uh, course of doxycycline that can be given to people that show up with a tick bite, with a swollen tick that's been present for 36 hours or more. And so giving doxycycline might just prevent Lyme disease from occurring at that point. We've been discussing Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses with Dr. Bobby Pritt, a clinical microbiologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Bobby, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you, Daryl. And Bobby has her own blog, and if nothing else, you've got to see it just because of the interesting title. It's called Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites. And the uh, address for her blog is listed in the description box for this podcast. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.